0: Um, We're doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, Deuteronomy is a series of fairly detailed laws that structured and gave shape to the daily life of the people of Israel. And uh, we are right now in Deuteronomy 16, which outlines uh, the three major feasts that the Jewish people were to keep and to celebrate every year. And they are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Booths. And uh, what's really interesting is that each of these feasts are tied and set to the agricultural calendar of harvest time. Um, So that uh, Passover is in April, uh, during the beginning of barley harvest, weeks is in June. During the, uh, the at the beginning of the wheat harvest, which is by far the biggest of the three harvests, and then booths happens in um, October during the olive and fruit harvest. So they're all connected, right, to this cycle of harvests, and I think this is where it's really hard for us as modern people to appreciate the deep meaningfulness of harvest time because we don't live in an agricultural society anymore, right? None of us are farmers. Right now, um, Noah and I are um, we're reading through this book series, um, The Little House in the Prairie. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's, it's really great. And uh, we recently finished the fourth book, which is On the Banks of Plum Creek. And if you've read that book, you know that the whole story is about Paul Ingalls trying to bring in the harvest. And you learn that there's all kinds of problems and all kinds of things that can go wrong. You know, there's fire and drought and locusts. And the whole time you're reading the story, it's so tense, right? You're you're so anxious. Because everything depends on this harvest, their entire livelihood depends on the wheat harvest. Imagine, imagine that your entire year's income at your job depends on a single event. Right? Imagine that, you know, the whole year long you go to work, you put in the hours, you you, you work on various projects, but Your entire paycheck depends on this single event going right. And it can go either way, right? So if it goes poorly, you don't get paid that year, right? Or maybe you only get paid partially. But if it goes well, can you imagine the sense of elation and celebration and and relief? And then imagine that everyone else you know is experiencing the same thing at the same time. So that everyone's livelihood depends on the same event. And if it goes well, do you know what would happen? We would all throw a huge party. And the whole community would be involved. And I sort of imagine, um, you know, the opening scene in the Lord of the Rings. Bilbo Baggins' birthday party. Do you guys remember that scene? Of just like the hobbits drinking beer. There's gaiety. They're, they're watching... Um, Gandalf's uh, fireworks and it's this incredibly joyful time it's like the most important event community event in the social calendar everyone is involved everyone is there and you know we don't really have that anymore maybe weddings is the closest to it I want you to know that what the Bible is doing here is so brilliant it's so profound Because it sets these three harvests, these harvest feasts, to the story of Israel's salvation. So Passover looks back to the Exodus. Um, Booths also looks back to the wilderness wanderings. That's why everyone has to construct these temporary tents. And then the Feast of Weeks looks forward to life in the Promised Land. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the Feast of Weeks. So turn with me in your bulletin or you can follow along on your screens. It's just four verses. Let me read it for you. Um, You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So I have three points. What is the Feast of Weeks? It is for, number one, Thanksgiving. Number two, it is for care for the needy. And then number three, it is a call to evangelism. Okay, so let's begin. Number one, it is for Thanksgiving. So the text tells us that the Feast of Weeks happens seven weeks after Passover, right? After the first harvest. And so there are seven sevens, right? It's resounding. It's it's multiplying sevens. And, you know, seven is a symbolic number in the Bible. It means completeness or fullness, right? Because it's all the days in the week. And so in the fullness of time, right? Seven times seven, 49. The next day, which is the 50th day, is the day of the feast. And it's the beginning of the wheat harvest. And so what they do is they take the first fruits, and it's also called the Feast of First Fruits, and they take this new grain that they have just harvested, and then they use it to make bread. And they offer their bread to God, and there's a much uh, fuller description of it um, in Leviticus chapter 23, which is um, a much longer passage with greater detail. And the people were actually to take this new bread and go to Jerusalem, and then they were to wave it before God at the temple. And then they were to have a huge feast. And according to Leviticus 23, it's very clear there the purpose of the feast, the purpose of the feast is to give thanks for the bounty of the harvest. And it's a little bit like our modern Thanksgiving Day. It's a day dedicated to giving thanks to God for His good provisions. That's the purpose of the feast. It's to cultivate a heart of gratitude. Now what's interesting is that all throughout the Bible, gratitude is not something that is optional for us, but it's commanded. It's commanded. You see this all throughout the Psalms. So, for example, Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 69, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. You see this echoed throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5.20, Give thanks always and for everything. Colossians 2.7, I love this. Paul says that we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. We are to be abounding. It's supposed to pour out. It's supposed to overflow from our lives so that gratitude is to characterize our lives. Why is that? Let's do a bit of analysis. Why? What's so wrong with not giving thanks? Let's do a thought experiment, okay? So at your jobs, you get paid every two weeks. And here's the question. Every a payday, do you go to your boss or you know maybe your payroll manager? And do you express your sincere and heartfelt thanks for your paycheck? I imagine that you do appreciate it, but you don't make too big a deal of it. Why not? Because you worked hard for it, right? In fact, you would be angry if it was withheld from you, if they didn't pay you, and rightly so, because you earned it. You deserved it. And so here is the principle. You don't have to give thanks if you have truly deserved what you have received, right? So you don't have to say thank you, profusely say thank you to your teacher for giving you an A on the test if you've truly deserved that grade, right? You don't have to tell the referee, thank you so much for awarding me this goal if you truly made the goal and you kept all the rules. So that's the principle. But suppose, on the other hand, let, let me pause for. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I'm actually pausing for the phone, not the helicopter. All right. Um, But suppose, on the other hand, that you are unemployed, and it's been a long time now, and uh, actually you're several months behind on rent, you don't have any money for groceries. Your situation is quite dire. And at this very low moment in your life, your friend knocks on the door and she gives you $10,000. And she says, this is to catch you up on your bills. This is to tide you over because tomorrow I got you a job interview. I've already spoken to the hiring manager. I'm fairly confident you're going to get the job and you're going to be back on your feet again. What would your response to her be? Would you say to her, it's about time. I was waiting for you to get your act together. No. You would be overwhelmed by the generosity of your friend. You would feel, almost involuntarily, this flood of gratitude for her. And so what do we learn here? Gratitude is acknowledging that what you have received is a gift and not a wage. It is the opposite of entitlement. It is to understand that what you have is not an obligation that was owed to you, but it's grace, free grace in your time of need. And then gratitude is rightly expressing praise to the giver for their generosity and kind-heartedness and for the costliness of their gift. And therefore, in any exchange, the absence of gratitude implies that you think what you have is what you deserve. Whereas, if you give thanks sincerely and truly, you are acknowledging that what you have is a gift. So that's the principle. Now, Let's extend the thought experiment. In the case of the farmer, okay, when the farmer brings in the harvest, should he give thanks? And the answer would be no, if and only if there is no God. Because if there is no God, then it would be entirely the farmer's own doing. And you know, farm work, let me let you city dwellers know, is incredibly labor-intensive. And so the harvest is his well-deserved wages. But the Bible says that the farmer is not alone, but that God is providing for the farmer. Let me explain um, by giving you an analogy. So, one of the great challenges of parenting um, is cultivating in our children a sense of gratitude. Every parent here knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because children are very naturally inclined and and tempted to think that what they have is what was due to them, what they deserve, right? You often hear children say, this is mine, right? This is mine. And as a parent, you want to say to them, you're not looking at the bigger picture, Yes, you may do chores. You know, let me pause again. I so look forward to April and going indoors. Okay, so as a parent, right, you are so tempted. I'm sure no one actually says this, but yes, you may do chores. Yes, you may have worked hard. But you need to understand everything you have comes from me. Okay? You are living in my house. You are eating my food. And therefore, you need to grasp the reality of your situation. Because, you know, children are very naturally inclined to just look at what is narrowly right in front of them and not to, and to lack awareness of the greater context in which they exist. Because they are living in a world that their parents have created for them. Do you understand? And therefore, all of their work, you know, and all of their achievements have been enabled, have been empowered by their parents. Does that make sense? Now listen to me. The Bible says that you and I We are living in God's world. We exist in a world that God has created for us, that comes from Him. And therefore, everything that we have is a gift from our Father. Our circumstances are a gift. Like, why are we safe here in America and not war refugees in the Ukraine? Our job is a gift. Everyone if you're honest with yourself, acknowledges that you got where you are because of a series of lucky breaks. Your education is a gift. Your family background is a gift. Your health is a gift. Like, why aren't you suffering some debilitating genetic disease? Did you choose your own genes? And then let me take it a step further. Do you know what we truly, truly deserve? We deserve, because of our sins, judgment, and death, and hell. We deserve to be banished from God's sight forever. And therefore, every breath that we take, every ray of sunshine that falls upon our face, is an undeserved gift. Do you acknowledge that? And so, the Feast of Weeks is this beautiful celebration. It's this annual reminder that everything we have is a gift from God. And then the whole community gathers together to give praise and thanks to God and to align their hearts and to draw their eyes upwards to God. And you know, the Bible says that in that place, In that place, we will experience spiritual and emotional health. We will experience wholeness and wellness of being. That's what the Bible promises. I want to share with you a story, and um, it's a fun story. Um, I heard it several years ago on This American Life, which is a a podcast. And it's the true story of a man named Amir Kamenitska. And Amir came to the United States when he was 13 years old as a Bosnian refugee. This was back in the 90s. Some of you may remember there was um, a war, a civil war in what was called Yugoslavia, the, the Balkans war. And Amir's father was killed in that war, and then he, uh, he and his mother and younger sister became refugees. They were resettled in this really rough. And the poor neighborhood in Atlanta. He says that when he came to the United States, he could barely speak any English. And so it was like this complete culture shock. And um, he was enrolled in this really rough school, inner city school called Clarkson High. Um, he says where there was gangs and violence and drugs. And he says his only friend was this other Bosnian refugee kid. And he said every day they would like huddle together in fear. And and that was his life. And then one day, um, in English class, he had this substitute teacher who had only been there for two weeks. And she gave this assignment in which she passed out to everyone this black and white photograph of uh, a soldier, like this weary soldier on a battlefield. Very evocative looking. And the teacher gave this major assignment Write an essay based on what you see. And Amir says that he was like overwhelmed by the difficulty of this assignment. Like he could barely write English. How could he possibly write an essay? And um, he says that he had this book that he had brought from Bosnia that he deeply loved by this renowned Bosnian author. He says like there were passages in there that was just poetic and soulful, and and it just filled his heart. And then every night, in order to improve on his English, he would painstakingly uh, copy out passages, you know, page after page from this book. And he had this idea, because the book had never been officially translated into English. He thought no one would know. And so he decided that for his assignment, he would copy out a particularly poignant passage from that book and basically he turned in what was a completely word for word plagiarized essay and he says the teacher read it and he says she was so moved by this essay she was so amazed by this sensitive you know mature essay she was blown away that she said to Amir, I've got to get you out of here. And so she took him to this really elite, prestigious, you know the, the most expensive private school in Atlanta. And she showed them uh, his essay. And based on the strength of that essay, they admitted him on scholarship, full scholarship, and uh, he says he received this really world-class education. It was like night and day. And he went on to college at Harvard where he met his wife. He got his PhD there. And then right now he's this really well-known, you know, acclaimed uh, professor of economics at the University of Chicago. And he's led this immensely successful life. And he's shared this story many times, and it's actually um, a part of his uh, whole theory. His field is behavioral economics, and he believes that much of our lives is really based on these random strokes of luck. Because in his own life, his whole life was radically changed by this part-time teacher who just happened to be impressed by an essay which he didn't even write, right? It was completely plagiarized. And so it was all based on a lie. And because of this fortuitous lie, he says he was saved from a life of poverty and criminality. He says that his, remember his best friend, the 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 Bosnian, the other Bosnian kid, he went on to go to prison and he led a very difficult life. And Amir says that That could have been him, except for this quirk, this this lucky break that struck like lightning. And he's told this story dozens and dozens of times before huge audiences. And on the podcast, he says, you know, he has always wished that he could meet his teacher again. He only remembers her last name, Miss Ames. And um, he wishes he could thank her. For saving his life, and uh, he 's tried many times to track her down, but unsuccessfully but uh, so what happens is this American life you know they have all these journalistic chops and resources, they hire a private investigator, and they go through this whole ordeal and it 's actually a big part of the story too and they finally finally track down Miss Ames and they set up a meeting, and Amir is quite nervous because he wonders if she even remembers him. It was only such a brief time that they had met. And when they met, Miss Ames says, Amir, I've never forgotten you. And she goes on to tell a completely different story than the one he remembered. She tells him that it wasn't the essay at all. In fact, she doesn't even remember that particular essay. And she goes on to say that Amir was a one-in-a-million genius. That she, that he was a student that a teacher might only hope to meet once in their lifetime. And that she had been observing him not for weeks, but for months and months. And the entire faculty agreed that he was a very special student. And she did set him up with... Uh, uh, she did you know, encourage him to apply to this private... Let me pause. <laughs> and so she says, you know, she did encourage him to apply to this private school. And she did take him to the interview. But she says... Amir got into the school completely on his own merits, based on his considerable record, based on numerous writing samples. And she says, even if he didn't get into that fancy private school, he would have been fine. Clarkson High was a decent school. you know. They had a good academic program for students like him. And she says, without a doubt, he would have gone on to do great things. She, she had no doubt about that. He would have gone on to college and then grad school. And that basically, she says, Amir deserves all of the success, all of the acclaim that he has achieved. It wasn't an accident. And it certainly wasn't the essay. I found the story so interesting, you know, on just so many levels. Because first of all, it shows us that memory is a faulty thing, right? What we remember is often unreliable. But the second thing, and this is the point I want to make. In the podcast, it says that everyone in Amir's life says that Amir is the happiest person that they know, without a doubt. Amir's wife says that hands down, he is profoundly and truly happy. Do you know why? because amir believes that everything that he has in his life is a gift in fact he believes it's a kind of fluke based on this this plagiarized essay and therefore everything he has is an undeserved gift and so he's gone through his entire life with this fundamental perspective of gratitude and wonder about the good things in his life versus somebody who approaches life from the vantage point of entitlement who believes that everything that they have is deserved and has been earned and if that is your attitude you will be profoundly unhappy because anytime you don't achieve the heights of what you think you deserve you will be angry and bitter and so the secret of happiness, listen to me, the secret of happiness is gratitude. And when the Bible commands, commands of us gratitude in our lives, it is not trying to rob us of joy, it is trying to give us joy. And therefore, don't you see that gratitude is not just a matter of of doing what is morally right, I mean, and doing what we owe God. We, we do owe God gratitude, absolutely. But God is also giving us wholeness and health. And therefore, do you see how good God is? Because what He asks of us will heal us. So that's the first thing, gratitude. Secondly, the feast was about care for the poor. So the Feast of Weeks, is not just about gratitude, it's about generosity. And you see this very explicitly in Leviticus 23, as I said, is a longer version of our passage. And right there in the middle of of Leviticus 23, talking about the feast, is this reminder that when the people harvest, they were not to go right up to the edge of their fields, but they were to leave the, the edges of their fields alone for the poor and for the needy, so that they could harvest the grain for themselves and provide for their needs. And so these are what are called the, the gleaning laws, which were designed to help the poor. In addition to that, um, the text says that in the feast itself, the people were to remember and include the vulnerable people in in society. Verse 11 lists them out, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow so that in the prosperity of the harvest, the people were to share share the bounty of it with those in need. You see, in the Bible, the two always go together. A heart of thanksgiving will always flow into a heart that cares for the poor. Because if you believe that everything you have is a gift, if you truly believe it, it will open your heart and compassion to the needs of others. Because that's the logic of grace. If you have been shown mercy, you will be able to show mercy to others. And so the Bible commands of us generosity. It commands this of us. But we struggle. Why? I think here's the thing. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we are too generous, there won't be enough left for ourselves. And this is where, in the Bible, gratitude is not just looking at the gifts, but it's looking at the giver, the the character of the giver. Do do you remember um, a few weeks back, we were looking at Deuteronomy 15, um, which is the sabbatical year. If you remember, every seven years, you're supposed to forgive All debts, you know, people who you might have given a loan to, which might be a significant sum of money. And that's a challenge. And this is what the text says, 15 verse 10. You shall give to him, that's the person in debt, freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Right? The Bible is very realistic about what we might experience because... For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. You see, if you are a child of God, listen to me, if you are a child of God, He will give you all that you need. If only you will open your hand in generosity to others. God... Listen to me. This is so important. If you give your life to God, He will surely take care of you. So that you will worry for nothing. That was the very purpose of the promised land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. A land of prosperity. So that the people could have the freedom to be generous. This is the social vision of the Old Testament. Prosperity is not to be kept for yourself, but it's to be shared by the whole community. Especially the vulnerable. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and the Levite. The Levites were the priests of Israel. They were all to be full participants in the feasting and celebration of God's provision. So that's the second point, care for the needy. Third point It's a call to evangelism. So here, this might be a little bit strange because you might be saying there's nothing in the text, and this also applies to Leviticus 23, there's nothing in the text that speaks to evangelism or missions, right? There's nothing there. So where are we getting this from? And here I want to teach you how to read the Bible. And I'm so excited about this. And in particular, I want to teach you the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is one of prophecy and fulfillment. The Old Testament is prophecy. The New Testament is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so this is the key The Feast of Weeks, you have to understand, was not just a celebration of Thanksgiving and generosity. It's all of those things, yes. But ultimately, it was a prophecy of the future. And you might say, how do we know it was a prophecy of the future? And the answer is because the Feast of Weeks plays a very prominent role in the story of the New Testament. And you might say, I've read the New Testament. I don't ever remember reading about the Feast of Weeks. And that is because in the New Testament, the Feast of Weeks goes by a different name. You see, the Jews of the Diaspora, these are the Jewish people who have been scattered throughout the Greek-speaking world. The Jews of the Diaspora kept and celebrated the three major feasts, including the Feast of Weeks, except they didn't call it the Feast of Weeks. They called it the 50th day. Because you remember, the Feast of Weeks is seven weeks after Passover. That's 49 days. And then it's the next day, which is the 50th day. In Greek, the 50th day is Pentecost. Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, is the Feast of Weeks. And if you know your New Testament, you know that Acts chapter 2 is an incredibly significant, critical passage in the Bible because it's the birth of the church. Let me, let me pause very briefly. And the opening verse in Acts chapter 2 is really interesting. This is what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, now that word arrived is from the Greek word simple rao. And simply rao doesn't exactly mean arrive. It actually means to be filled. To be fulfilled. It literally means to fill up a container with water all the way up to the brim. It's a very unusual word to use in this verse. And I really like, you know, the ESV translation which we're using is adequate, it's okay. But I really like the old King James translation of it. This is what it says. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Had fully come. And what that's saying is that prior to Acts chapter 2, the feast of weeks had been celebrated in the Old Testament, but it was, it was like a cup that was only half filled with water. It was only a partial realization. And it was not until the New Testament, until the events of Acts chapter 2, that the cup was finally full. That the prophecy of the feast was fulfilled. What does that mean? You know, in Jesus' ministry, he would frequently speak of the kingdom of God as a harvest. You see this especially in his parables. Think about the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the sower. And in all of these parables, the message is that the Messiah has come to gather in the harvest. And the harvest is the people of God. And then in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus says this. It's a very famous saying. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that all throughout the Old Testament, all of the centuries that passed in the Old Testament, the harvest was ripening. And then when the Messiah comes, there will be this great ingathering of people. And the disciples were so excited because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then disaster. One fateful night, Jesus is arrested. And then He's put on trial. And then He's swiftly executed on a Roman cross. And did you know that that happened? His execution happened at the Feast of Passover, which is highly symbolic, because remember what Passover is. It's, it's the, the blood of the sacrificial lamb that covers over the sins of the people. The disciples should have said, oh, that, that's what's going on, but they didn't understand. They didn't get it. That's also, by the way, the, the Passover is why there was huge crowds gathered in Jerusalem during Jesus' death. And so, the, and so Jesus is crucified, and the disciples thought it's all over. A dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. And then three days later, Jesus resurrects from the dead. And then he shows himself to his disciples. And do you remember what he says to them? He says, Stay here in Jerusalem, and you will receive power from on high. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And then what happens is the disciples wait. They wait one week and then two weeks and then three weeks. Seven weeks pass by. Seven times seven, the fullness of time. The next day is the fiftieth day. It's the it's the feast of weeks. It's Pentecost. And again, because this is a major Jewish feast, huge crowds are gathered in Jerusalem. They're pouring in once again. Jewish believers from all over the world, from the Jewish diaspora. And alongside of them, you have Gentile proselytes or god These were non-Jewish converts who believed in the God of Israel. And so this huge international throng of people from all over the world are pouring in. Acts 2 5 says, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as this huge crowd of people are gathered at the temple in Jerusalem, suddenly this, this mighty wind blows and then tongues of fire descend on, on each of the believers, on each of the disciples, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in foreign tongues. And all the people are amazed because they're hearing the disciples speak in their own languages. How can this be? And Acts chapter 2, it's really interesting. It goes out of its way to list out and enumerate all of the different ethnicities and languages that were involved. And I think it's worth reading it. Let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Listen to this. And they, that's the people in Jerusalem, gathered for the feast, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Right? Jesus was from Galilee. It was not really a renowned place of learning. and These are country bumpkins. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phyregea and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes; those are Gentile believers, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then Peter stands up. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people are cut to their hearts. And they they cry out, What must we do to be saved? And Peter, in verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. And the text says that on that day, 3,000 people from this international crowd, they're baptized and they're saved. And it happened on the Feast of Weeks. So what is the point? Let me give you two quick points and then we're done. First point. I want you to know once again, and I'm so excited about this, the book of Deuteronomy is ultimately about Jesus Christ and about His church. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the fulfillment of every law. Haven't you seen that? Each of the feasts is about Him. And for a thousand years, between the time of Moses and the time of the New Testament, the Jewish people kept the Feast of Weeks. And by the way, the Jewish people still keep it. If you have Jewish friends, it's called Shavuot, which in Hebrew means weeks. They're still keeping it. But they are waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for Jesus. And the New Testament church is the ultimate realization of the story of Israel in the Promised Land. Don't you see? That's what the story is about. It's about you. It's about me. Here I am. I'm a Gentile. Just one generation ago, my parents were from Korea. God has called me and God has called you into this great ingathering of His people. That's what the Feast of Weeks is about. Number two, Jesus has given us a mission. Do you know what the mission is? Do you remember what He said to the church? Go and make disciples of all nations. Indelible Grace Church, why do we exist? Is it just to be a comfortable church? Is it just to be just to have nice spiritual lives? No. The purpose of our church and the purpose of our lives is to bring in The harvest of nations. Don't you see? And I'm not just talking about international missions. As a church, we absolutely support missions. We have a missionary, Steve King, and his wife, Sehi, and they have two daughters. Their heart is for China, and their heart is for Taiwan, and they need our prayers because the Chinese government, the communist government, is very hostile to Christians. So let's pray for open doors. And so missions is absolutely vital to our calling. But it's not only that, right? That's far evangelism. There's also near evangelism. Do you know what near evangelism is? God in His great wisdom has brought the nations here to the Bay Area. They are our co-workers, our neighbors, and our friends. I know that many of you, all of you, have unbelieving friends you have unbelieving family members. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Otherwise, what are you here for? What is your life for? Is it just to have a nice job and a nice house and a nice family and then we die? Is that all there is to it? No. There's this beautiful passage in the Bible, Habakkuk 2.14. I've made my boys memorize it. It says this, listen. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That is the glorious vision of the Bible And that is what all of history is moving towards. Why have we had this pandemic for the past two years? Why is there a war in the Ukraine? These are all events that God is orchestrating to this climactic ending, this great ingathering of all of God's people from all the nations of the world, so that we will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Is that your vision too? Is that your desire? And if it's not your desire, then pray, Lord, make it my desire. Capture my heart with your vision. Use me for your glory. And when you pray like that consistently, earnestly, your life will be filled With mission and purpose and joy, because you will be an instrument in the hand of God. Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out more workers. Let's do that. Let's pray. Join me. Almighty God, What an amazing, beautiful vision that you are gathering in like a harvest, this ripening harvest, all the peoples of the world that they might know you and enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we pray boldly, earnestly, insistently that we would be part of that vision that we would not stand on the sidelines that this would be the mission of IGC that we would be a city on a hill that we would be a shining beacon and light the purpose of a light is not to be hid under a bushel but is to shine Lord may our lives shine may our lives be living sermons may you give us open doors and open hearts to talk with our unbelieving friend, our unbelieving family member, and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Give us words to speak. Give us courage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.